Welcome to the CSIS Cogit Asia podcast, where we think deeply and reflect on policy in Asia. I'm your host, Colin Quinn. We'll start, as you always do, with the region's news. In Seoul, Korea's National Assembly returned to normal order on Monday after the leading opposition party ended a boycott of parliamentary sessions. Last week's protest was over the government's decision to reintroduce state-authored history textbooks. Beginning in 2017, secondary school students will learn Korean history through national textbooks. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi arrived in London this week for talks with his British counterpart David Cameron, followed by an address to the British Parliament. Modi and Cameron are slated to conclude agreements on defence, development and climate and energy issues. Three firms bidding for a $35 billion defence contract to build Australia's new submarine fleet have fallen victim to hackers. The Chinese and Russian hackers alleged to be behind the breaches. And preparations are underway in Manila for the Asia-Pacific Economic Community, or APEC, Leaders Summit, which will take place on November 18th and 19th ahead of the East Asia Summit in Malaysia the following week. In Myanmar, polls closed on Sunday in the country's landmark election and ballot counting is underway. Early returns indicate that Aung San Suu Kyi's National League of Democracy Party won a majority of seats. And that's the news. Building on the story of Myanmar's elections, my colleague and CSIS Asia Policy blog editor Jeff Bean sat down with Feng Wen an associate fellow with the Chair for Southeast Asia Studies at CSIS, to discuss the results. Hi, my name is Jeff Bean. I'm joined today by Fong Nguyen, an associate fellow with our Chair for Southeast Asia Studies, uh, to discuss the recent Myanmar elections, which were concluded over the weekend, uh, held on on November 8th. Um, Most of the uh, results are in, although some uh, constituencies are still being tallied. Fong, I want to ask you, the National League for De- Democracy and Aung San Suu Kyi's party appears to have won a resounding victory. Talk us through the basics on the results. What does the NLD's victory uh, mean for, for next steps, and what does it mean for Aung San Suu Kyi? The National League of Democracy, or NLD, has performed extremely well in these elections. Um, the party swept the poll in most urban areas of Myanmar, in Yangon and Mandalay, as expected, but has also fared very well in ethnic states such as in Mon State in southeastern Myanmar and in Jin State in northwestern Myanmar. According to the latest batch of results that were announced um, this evening in Myanmar, the NLD is only two seats short of having a two-thirds majority in both houses of parliament. And the NLD, Aung San Suu Kyi herself, has claimed that they have won 75% of all contested seats across the nation. Uh, As of now, 80% of the results are in, so we'll have to wait for the official tally. But she looks set on her way to have a landslide election, uh, I'm sorry, victory in these elections. And by comparison, the ruling Union Solidarity and Development Party, or USDP, which is the political wing of the military, has only received 8% of seats in the lower house and 7% of seats in the upper house um, as of now. So we can see there's such a big difference um, in between the two parties. Now, what has been the various uh, international uh, election observers who were deployed uh, to monitor the election? What is their consensus been to to this point on the conduct of the election? 
We had more than 10,000 international observers who traveled to Myanmar to observe um, the voting process, and the feedback so far has been largely positive. The Carter Center, um, a U.S. non-governmental organization that observed the election, called the voting process a success uh, with one of the observers, Mary Robinson, who was a former president of Ireland, uh, describing the election day as moving to tears for her to see thousands of people lining up peacefully and orderly to cast their votes despite a torrential downpour on, on Sunday. And, uh, you know, just remember that five years ago, Myanmar wasn't even a democracy. It was still ruled by military dictatorship. And many of the emerging democracies in the region still have to deal with electoral violence or, you know, fraud um, which didn't happen um, during this election from Myanmar. The Union, uh, the European Union, which also observed the election, said that it was better than many expected, but refused to call it free and fair because of an existing constitution that, among other things, bars opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi from the presidency because of her foreign spouse and, and children and reserves 25% of seats in parliament for the military. There were complaints about voting irregularities in some stations because people believe that some advanced votes were cast in favor of the military and were somehow manipulated. But other than that, no violence. Everything happened peacefully, orderly. And the fact that that happened was in and by itself historic for Myanmar. In terms of the uh, the ethnic parties' uh, performance, uh, as far as we know, uh, in the elections to this point, first off, do you, do you think, in a, in broad terms, that they got a, a fair shake? And and second, should we be surprised at the relatively poor performance, even in in some of the regional and state parliaments, uh, for some of the ethnic specific parties? So far, from what we've seen, the only two ethnic political parties that made any headways are the Arakan National Party um, in Rakhine State in western Myanmar and the Shan Nationalities League for Democracy in Shan State in northeastern Myanmar. But um, the Shan National Nationalities League for Democracy has only received about... Um, 3.7% of seats in their lower house and less than 2% in the upper house. So the margin between these ethnic parties and the NLD is really huge. And what we're seeing is that Aung San Suu Kyi's personal brand has carried very well in these ethnic areas. And ethnic states have trouble, even though they share the backgrounds of ethnic with ethnic voters and they share their grievances, they just have trouble attracting voters in the way that Aung San Suu Kyi did. Do we know yet how this will impact international policy, uh, the specific policy of the United States and other countries toward Myanmar in terms of sanctions? And in addition to that, what, what are some of the other hurdles that, that you think are important to highlight uh, in terms of the peaceful transfer of power over the coming months as we have uh, several months now before the executive branch will take office? Obviously, there has to be a, an inter interparliamentary election of the president as well. At the moment, I think the U.S. government is still watching um, the post-election period very carefully to see, you know, what 
the final results will be. The consensus in Washington right now is that the voting process was a success. It was much better than most people expected, but that uh, a peaceful post-election period is just as important. Secretary of State John Kerry echoed this message on Sunday when he congratulated their people and institutions of Myanmar in holding the historic poll. President Obama has called opposition leader Aung San Suu Kyi and President Tien Sen to congratulate them on the poll, but also to convey the message that what happens over the coming months will be very important before the next government comes in around late March or early April of next year. In terms of U.S. uh, future policy steps toward Myanmar, I think any steps, including the prospects of removing um, remaining economic sanctions, removing the names of businesses and government officials still on the blacklist, and charting the future of military-to-military engagement will have to wait until after a new government comes in. But interestingly, you know, Many businesses, many large businesses in Myanmar, most of which are controlled by cronies of the military and the military itself, are very optimistic and they are hopeful that a new government with greater international legitimacy will allow Myanmar to get off remaining U.S. sanctions and attract more business deals and foreign investments, and that will benefit them. Any other hurdles that you think are worth highlighting? Yes. So, so far, we have 80% of results. We need to wait for the other 20% to come in, and we should have the complete picture by the end of next week. Aung San Suu Kyi herself has called for a meeting between her and the president, their commander-in-chief, and lower house speaker, Shreman, to discuss um, the transfer of power to the next government. The president and their commander-in-chief have agreed to meet her once all official results are in. Um, If the current results stand, it means that Aung San Suu Kyi can nominate two presidential candidates, and the military has the right to nominate the other presidential candidates. Of those three individuals, one will become the president and two will become vice presidents. I think the biggest hurdle or question still at this point is who Aung San Suu Kyi will want to be the next president because she herself cannot be and whether the military will be okay with her choice. So we'll see. Thank you so much, Fong Nguyen. Thank you. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. That was Fong Nguyen. In our second feature interview this week, we look ahead to the Paris Climate Conference, better known as COP21, which will start on November 30th. Over 190 countries will participate in negotiations, yet no region has a wider range of perspectives on climate change or interests at stake than the Indo-Pacific. Two experts from our Energy and National Security Program team, CSIS Senior Fellow Jane Nakano and Associate Fellow Michelle Melton, joined Jeff Bean to preview the COP21 and help frame what the conference means for countries around Asia. Hi, my name is Jeff Bean. I'm the editor of the CSIS uh, Asian Policy blog, Kajit Asia, and producer of this podcast. Today we're going to discuss uh, the Paris Climate Conference, which will take place between November 30th and December 11th, and what it means for some of the countries across the the Asia-Pacific. To do this, I'm joined today by two experts from our energy and national security team here at CSIS, uh, Jane Nakano, a senior fellow with the team who focuses um, on uh, a variety of issues related to energy and energy security in Northeast Asia. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
And uh, also Michelle Melton, uh, an associate fellow with the energy team here at CSIS, uh, who covers a, a variety of issues in the electricity and climate portfolio. Glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks. Jane, I want to start with you. Can you briefly describe what the UN framework process aims to achieve in Paris? I think the aims are quite straightforward in that we'll be working uh, towards uh, having a legally binding agreement uh, that will go into effect post-2020 with the universal participation among all nations, and that will uh, uh, allow us to keep the global warming below 2 degrees Celsius. Thanks, Jane. That's a really great overview. Just to add a little more um, meat on the bones here. So Jane mentioned that the agreement is aimed to be legally binding. That does not necessarily mean that the targets that countries are aiming for will themselves be legally binding, but just the fact that they are committing to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, that fact itself is going, well, is hoped to be legally binding. That's, that's part of what is being talked about. In terms of universal participation, what that really means is for the first time, developing and developed countries both have responsibility for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Previously and under the structure of the original 1992 uh, United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, under which these negotiations are taking place, um, Annex I countries, which were essentially countries that were developed in 1992, uh, had responsibility for reducing emissions, and developing countries, or those countries that were developing in 1992, did not. But the, as the world has changed in the last 20 years, some of the countries that were not big emitters in 1992, like China, are now really significant emitters. And so the last 20 years can really be seen as an attempt to um, bring everybody to the table and why Paris is so exciting for people who um, are climate watchers and are invested in this space is that this agreement will attempt for the first time to get everyone on board with making greenhouse gas reduction commitments. And that has been a really heavy lift. Just quickly to touch on the last thing that Jane talked about, the two-degree target. There's been a lot of analysis out, including from the UNFCCC itself, saying that the pledges that were made in the run-up to Paris, what are called the um, INDCs, there's no lack of, of acronyms in this space, the Intended Nationally Determined contributions, which are the pledges to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, those have been made by, I believe, about 160 countries representing, I think, 90% of emissions. Don't quote me exactly on those numbers, but it's about that. Um, that is not enough to keep us within the two-degree target, which was established in um, a few years back by the international community, two degrees is the temperature is the temperature rise that scientists agree beyond which um, the most harmful and irreparable damages of climate change will occur. Um, we are not going to achieve that, as all analysis shows from this agreement, and I don't think anybody going to the agreement would tell you otherwise. Everyone has their eyes open going in. But the point right now is really just to bend the curve towards two degrees. Um, and I think there may be some language in what is potentially exciting between now and Paris is seeing what kind of language is in the agreement about long-term decarbonization and what that goal is going to be. Thank you, uh, Michelle and, and Jane, for a terrific overview. There are a wide range of perspectives on climate change represented uh, across the Asia-Pacific. What are some of the interests and issues at stake for, for some of the countries in the region? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Asia, the Asia-Pacific region is a really, really interesting one for climate watchers because there's such a range of diverse perspectives. Um, just to name three countries, India, the Maldives, and Australia, all of these countries have really 
have really, really different interests and have very different and strong positions in the talks. And they're not exactly what you would necessarily think. So um, although many developed countries, um, countries in the OECD, like Europe and the United States, are pushing very hard for um, a climate, a strong climate agreement, Australia, which is an OECD economy, is actually and has been a bit of a climate laggard, at least in the past. And moving forward, I think people will be interested to see how much the new government sort of shifts its stance on climate. Um, the Australians had a carbon tax that they repealed. They are um, less interested in a strong international agreement, and partially that has to do with the resources that they have. They're a really significant coal exporter. Um, they are looking to be a really significant gas, natural gas exporter. And so they are um, interested in ensuring that um, all countries have the ability to access their resources, which does not necessarily line up with an interest in a strong climate agreement. Uh, the Maldives, on the other hand, are, um, even though they are a developing eco economy, um, and very, they're very heavily reliant on tourism, and they are part of a group called the Small Island Developing States um, that are very, very, very concerned about climate change because of the effect of sea level rise on their, on not only their livelihoods, but on their very existence. They've been very concerned and very aggressive and vocal for a much stronger agreement. They think the international goal should not be two degrees Celsius, but um, one and a half degrees Celsius. Um, they're very concerned about what's going to happen to their people and where they will go if some of the um, most dramatic, or not even the most dramatic, but some sort of drastic sea level rise happens. Um, so they've been very vocal and active on that front. At the same time, you have a country like India, which is a developing economy, which has consistently over the last 20 years said that they need room to grow, that it is unfair for developing economies to have to shoulder some of the burden for climate change when it is developed countries that are responsible for most of the emissions, even though that is no longer, um, that is true on a cumulative basis, it's no longer true on a on an annual basis, they have been very um, vocal about the need for developed countries to take the lead and very insistent that they should um, not have to make aggressive cuts at the expense of economic growth. So, so while they've, they've given a little bit in these talks, they have submitted an, an INDC, um, they continue to press for both money from the developed world to um, implement and facilitate both mitigation and adaptation. And they've been very, um, very vocal that they are going to continue to burn coal for the foreseeable future because they prioritize economic development. How do you expect some of the recently concluded bilateral accords on climate uh, among some of the major powers, particularly Northeast Asia, such as that between the United States and China, to, to impact the, the broader negotiations? Thanks, Jeff, for the great question. The uh, agreement between the United States and China uh, reached back in uh, November last year was one of the breakthroughs in my mind in that it really brought China into the fold uh, in that I think <clears throat> uh, uh, between the, the two leading emitters of greenhouse gases, we're able to really uh, uh, put Paris as one of the uh, important, uh, or if anything, the, the most um, uh, important uh, meeting of the series to come up with framework post-2020. And the, the bilateral agreement also emphasized how... Um, that China will uh, sort of uh, serve uh, 
more as sort of bridge between uh, countries that are uh, in a more of a developing stage, but then the countries that now have means to be able to pursue more uh, proactive measures. Uh, also following up uh, uh, the September uh, meeting between President Obama and President Xi of China illustrated how China is now willing to contribute uh, quite significantly uh, to the uh, developing countries' um, uh, ability to uh, address uh, challenges such as uh, adaptation by contributing a significant, significant amount of money. Also, I wanted to uh, uh, talk about a little bit uh, about the, the recent agreement or the, the discussion between uh, China and France in that uh, uh, I believe it was a uh, week ago that um, uh, French and Chinese governments uh, basically uh, talked about uh, their um, uh, expectations for Paris, and one of the the highlights was that the two uh, talk about the imp importance of verification. In that, um, the uh, perhaps uh, the the COP twenty one will really um, try to have uh, more of a universal buy in into the five year verification. In other words, the the parties will try to verify. Uh, the progress of the, their um, individual efforts every five years or so. Of course, there are some challenges that uh, still remain or things that we still have to work out, um, you know, exactly who will verify and then, of course, you know, how you enforce them if we decide that a certain uh, countries are lagging. But still uh, having that sort of... Um, uh, the willingness to talk about some of the specific benchmarks or uh, building benchmarks... Uh, it's very encouraging. Yeah, just to add on to what Jane was saying, I agree. I really think it would be impossible to overstate the importance that um, the U.S.-China agreement last year had on providing momentum and um, building expectations for the talks. And with this agreement, the United States and China really broke the deadlock and were able to successfully, in my opinion, move the conversation forward. Now, it's not to say that that conversation is not still relevant. It certainly still is, and it will certainly still be a big issue at the talks. But uh, by virtue of the fact that China, which is the world's largest emitter on, a, on an annual basis, although not on a per capita or cumulative basis, um, is now coming forward, even though it is still a developing economy, and saying, we also want to do our part, and we are willing to put skin in the game to do that. Just to add on quickly, um in many ways, I think it is uh, sort of exciting development in that, uh, that we might, you know, see more uh, sort of a commitment or more forward-leaning positions from other countries that had previously used um, sort of China as sort of the, the big country that could have spoken on their behalf, uh, talking about the, the, you know, the sort of deference and historical sort of equity issues and such. But, you know, perhaps, you know, uh, we might see China having a very good uh, uh, sort of a multiplying effect or China coming um, into the fold more uh, eagerly and, and assuming more of a leadership role may actually uh, uh, help uh, other emerging economies to uh, be a lot more uh, uh, productively engaged in the process. So we've spoken a lot about the, the politics of the, the convention itself and some of the bilateral agreements uh, on the sidelines over the last couple of years. With regards to a practical question of energy mix, uh, in terms of the prospects for two specific uh, contributors to the energy mix in a wide variety of countries, uh, coal and nuclear, what should we expect as a result of COP21? 
in Asia, I think coal will uh, stay as a uh, one of the most important sources of energy, uh, given it, the ease of uh, transport and storage, as well as the fact that uh, uh, coal is indigenous to uh, many of the countries in Asia Pacific. Um, so, of course, you know the climate discussion um, really uh, puts uh, greater attention on some of the um, uh, emitting. Uh, 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 so more recovering emitting technologies, but I don't think uh, the climate talks will necessarily uh, uh, kill any of these sources. Uh, I think, but the challenges for coal would be uh, to uh, what extent um, we'd be able to encourage uh, more of a higher efficient way of burning coal, uh, but then also uh, trying to figure out exactly how to uh, really um, have high efficiency uh, technology spread uh, in the, the parts of the, the uh, region that are still heavily dependent. And certainly in the longer run, uh, the, the viability, both uh, technology viability um, or technological viability, but then also perhaps commercial viability of um, CCS, the carbon capture and storage technology would be quite important. Nuclear is an also interesting one in that uh, it is a, a virtually zero carbon emitting source of energy, but it does uh, require massive uh, upfront investment. And of course, there are all these safety and security uh, um, issues that uh, need to be taken into the consideration. Uh, but the, you know, as you know, to the extent uh, that it is a low carbon uh, emitting source uh, and then also base load electricity, I think nuclear will uh, will likely to um, uh, remain as something that are leaders in uh, Asia Pacific, especially the countries that are probably more of a, um, I guess, uh, medium to sort of probably higher income countries uh, will uh, the leaders will keep in their sort of a policy option toolbox. I think the takeaway message here and what and what Jane said, and I would just emphasize, is that COP21 is not going to have a big impact, at least in the short to medium term, on the energy mix in Asia Pacific or elsewhere. Coal is king still in Asia, and I, there's nothing that could happen at COP21 that would change that. Nuclear um, is... Still an expensive technology, but a low-carbon technology, and I think governments are still trying to figure out where it fits long-term in their decarbonization priorities. And again, nothing at COP21 is going to make or break nuclear. People who are expecting um, a carbon price out of this deal or some sort of carbon trading mechanism, I think will be very, very disappointed. That's really not on the table, at least um, in this round of negotiations, and I think it's probably not on the table for the um, foreseeable short-term future. So the viability of, of these technologies and the long-term fate of these technologies is really not about what happens in the negotiations, but about the decisions that countries make at the national level. And from a United States policy perspective, what outcome should, or position should we expect the U.S. government to take or, or outcome should we expect them to seek with regard to the negotiations? Sure. Um, I think when, when asking this question, which is a great question, we've got to differentiate between 
um, the executive branch, which is conducting the negotiations via the State Department and the U.S. Congress, which um, often we talk about the U.S. position, the U.S. negotiating position, which is absolutely the position of the United States in the negotiations. But that is very, very different from the position of, say, the United States government as a whole um, accounting for all branches of government. So I'll talk about both briefly. The executive branch position, which is represented in the negotiations, is that we should have a commitment that is um, strong and binding, although the actual cuts will not be binding. They will be quote unquote bottom up that is determined by national governments. Um, the United States has worked very hard over the last several years since the announcement of in 2013 of the um, President's Climate Action Plan to take take every opportunity to reduce greenhouse gas emissions domestically so that they can demonstrate to the international community that, that we are actually serious about tackling this problem. The position of the United States is that the that we should be doing everything we can, but that we can't necessarily know how technology will evolve into the future. And that is why we need to review progress and technology every five years, which is what Jane was saying earlier about the five-year review, um, so that we can um, adjust our, our ambitions and plans in light of changing circumstances. That's a real core part of the um, US position. At the same time, the U.S. position, which has, I think so far, it's fair to say, been relatively successful, has been that everybody should be responsible for, for doing what they can um, in light of national circumstances. And that means that developing countries, as well as developed countries, need to step up to the plate and do their part. Um, in terms of Congress, Congress has been more skeptical in general of the international negotiations and what can be achieved in them. Um, I think there's a couple reasons for this, um, just being charitable. I think they're very, very concerned about the costs to United States taxpayers and United States rates, rate payers of this transition, and they want to make sure that everyone truly is doing their part and that the U.S. does not um, unilaterally take action that will um, imperil U.S. competitiveness when in fact, if the U.S. takes action, it could just be canceled out by adding another, um, you know, 100 coal plants in China or in the Asia-Pacific region. And so they're very, very concerned that the United States not take action that they that we have to pay for as taxpayers, um, only to have that action canceled out by the actions of other countries. Um, that is something that obviously the administration is aware of and is attempting through the talks to make sure it does not happen, but I think there's still a lot of skepticism in Congress that um, we are we are doing our share, our, excuse me, our fair share and not more than our fair share. And that is really, um, that and the issue of cost and how much cost the United States should bear versus other countries has been a huge, huge issue. Um, the other issue that Congress has really been attentive to, um, well, there's two other issues. The first is the legal nature of the document. Congress, the Senate, um, constitutionally has the prerogative and the not just the ability, but the obligation to ratify all international treaties. And the administration has been arguing that it does not have to send whatever is agreed upon in Paris to Congress because it is an international agreement and not an international treaty. I think um, a lot of people in Congress feel that that is not the case and that that's a little disingenuous um, and would like the opportunity to debate and vote on, vote on ratification. 
The other issue is about what, what I talked about earlier, which is the domestic actions being undertaken by the government. A lot of them feel that it is um, a sign of regulatory overreach, that the Clean Power Plan in particular, um, but other things as well, but especially the Clean Power Plan, um, is not going to withstand legal scrutiny. Um, they are trying to use the Congressional Review Act to overturn it. And so they are trying to signal very strongly to participants in Paris that they hope to undo, and if there is a Republican president, that they will undo um, whatever domestically the president has promised to deliver in Paris. And so don't anybody get your hopes up. Um, I think that that's been the subject of a lot of debate and whether they can actually um, undo a lot of those efforts, I think is it's going to be a lot more difficult if it's possible at all than I think some of them are making it out to be. But certainly um, the administration is trying to project confidence moving forward uh, that, that their planned actions and the actions they're undertaking will, um, will be in place for the long term. That was Jane Nakano and Michelle Melton. Now we turn to our one to watch, standardized testing in South Korea. On Thursday this week, over 600,000 South Korean high school students took the College Scholastic Aptitude Test, or CSAT, exam. The test is a serious affair in Korea with intense competition. The CSAT represents many students' best chance to attend a high-level university or to receive a scholarship. Korean high school students receive one of the most rigorous education regimes anywhere, attending classes on average of 16 hours a day for six days a week over their four-year programs. Efforts to minimize distractions to the students on test day are extensive. In order to ease traffic on the morning of the test, Korean government institutions and corporations had their employees come to work an hour later than usual at 10 a.m., perhaps most tellingly from 1.10 to 1.35 in the afternoon when the listening part of the English test took place nationwide, takeoffs and landings of airplanes were banned at all airports across the country. And that's our show for this week. You can always find more at cogitage.com and csis.org. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also check out our island tracker and maritime specific analysis on the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative or AMTI microsite. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.